coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Yeah, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't breathe to tell him that I couldn't breathe. So there was a lot of times where like, you know, in my little kid mind, I was like, this is my last minutes on earth right now. So what I did learn from that, though, is uh, my anger protects me because I would go into a, a serious rage I have the strength to finally get them off me, and uh, it would be pretty extreme. I would we today we joke about it, but because I would run right to the kitchen, grab a knife, chase them around the house. Hello, beautiful people! Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host today. We have drummer Daryl Ralph. As the drummer for the Canadian rock band Bonds of Mara and the cult cartoon and band Sons of Butcher, Daryl Ralph is a musician. Born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario, Daryl had early aspirations of being a rock star. At the age of 19, he moved out west, settling in White Rock, Kelowna, and Vancouver, B.C., The intent was for Daryl to embed his roots in his music career, but instead became heavily rooted in his addiction. Unable to support himself and his addiction, Daryl returned to Ontario, where this hardened lifestyle continued for over a decade and a half. Alcohol and intravenous drug use completely dominated his life, overshadowing any possibility of music success. This consumed all hopes of healthy, lasting relationships and robbed him of all quality of life. At the age of 35, Daryl finally realized he needed help. Following several failed attempts at sobriety, Daryl finally found his way along a path towards health and recovery. Today, in addition to Bonds of Mara and Sons of Butcher, Daryl also plays guitar alongside his wife in an acoustic duo playing the local circuit. You can hear Bonds of Mara, Sons of Butcher, and Jenny Howe's duo on all streaming platforms. I highly recommend that all my musical listeners listen to this podcast. Daryl is an incredible man and has incredible recovery, but he also has the story that I hear from many musicians where they think that their hopes and dreams are lost as a result of their addiction and come to find out that they are not And he tells how he got from where he was to where he is today, which is 13 years clean and sober. Daryl is his band, Bonds of Mara. They're coming back after COVID. So definitely check them out on Spotify. I listened to their songs on there. They're awesome. Not just saying that. Truly, really enjoyed their music. Bonds of Mara, B-O-N-D-S of M-A-R-A. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Lots of nuggets of wisdom and great quotes. So without further ado, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Woo! (laughs) 
All right. This is awesome. How often do you do podcasts in your drumming room? Oh, I do everything from here just because it's all, well, <laughs> I'm lying because apparently it's not set up, but it's set up for everything <laughs> else. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, this is exciting. Well, we always start off tradition for season three with a picture, a bad haircut picture. And I received a picture that will be posted with your episode on Instagram. Tell me about this picture. How old are you and who cut your bangs? I forgot all about that. (laughs) I I cut my bangs. Okay. It was, uh, I don't know why I had to have my hair cut because nor at that age I think I was like grade two. So probably okay. seven years old. And uh yeah, I don't know. I normally didn't like having my hair cut. My mom always just cut my hair and it was kind of always like a put a bowl over my head kind of look. So I don't know why I needed it cut, but I I tried to cut my own hair and that was the turnout. That was the uh result. I like it. It's, it's, uh, you have, it's, it's very rocker of you. Like I don't have a style. I'm just going to cut out my bangs here. Yeah. I probably would have liked it more later on, but I was like, yeah, it was uh photo day a couple days after that. And I was freaking of out. Of course. Yeah. Of course. That's always how it is. It's always, there's always my, something. <laughs> my mom was really mad at me. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. So Tell me a little bit about your family. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I have an older brother and an older sister, so I'm the youngest. There was like alcohol, uh, alcoholism was in the family. I didn't know about it, uh, you know, relatives and things like that. Uh, there was drinking every night, but it was never like fall down, drunk, missing work and stuff like that. It was just, it was always kind of like used as celebration. You know, uh, right. we celebrate things. Oh, it's a special, it's Christmas. Here's a little glass of wine. You know, at a very young age, I remember, you know, having, what, what's that, uh, uh, duck, sparkling duck or something like that. I can't remember what it's called. Just, uh, you know, just always a little, little, you know, special days and stuff like that. You have wine at dinner and at a very young age. And there was always like drinking, like pretty much every night as like but just as like social and stuff like that not not me just in the house in the yeah house. your parents and how much older are your siblings so uh my brother's two years older and my sister is i believe about five years older okay okay and your your brother, interesting about your experience with your brother was, you know, a lot of people are bullied outside of the home. You ha- experienced some bullying inside the home. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of wrote it off to like typical, you know, older brother stuff, which m- most of it was really. Uh, uh, and to this day, like, yeah, I want to make it clear, like, uh yeah, you know, I have no villains in my story or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother and I get along great. We definitely have uh, set up boundaries over the years and things like that. But I didn't even know what boundaries were until I got into recovery or anything. As far as like the bullying and, and stuff like that. So that was, there was a few things that came out of that, which uh, was, you know, but and and I do look at, you know, now as an adult, I, I know that my brother probably had his own 
pain and stuff like that and the way he dealt with it. I'm sure, you know, he probably was super loved and he was the young one. And then here comes along good old Daryl. And it's like, maybe there's a little bit of jealousy there and stuff like that. But it was a lot of every day, just pretty much, uh, you know, just making fun of the way I look. Uh, and a big thing about my brother and I, we're only two years apart, but he was much bigger than me. Uh, you know, at a point there was like, I was 115 pounds and he was like 275. So I get a huge difference. And uh, so a lot of what would happen is we get introduced to neighbors, parents, like uh, the like adults around the neighborhood. And they'd take a look at him, take a look at me and uh, immediate follow up. Like, you know, what happened to you or like, right. you know, or have to make a joke like, well, do they keep the food away from you and do they lock you in a basement? Stuff like that. And uh, well, actually, he did used to lock me in the basement and uh, things like that, uh, you know, throw me down, sit on me. Whereas like he, he wasn't he was just so much bigger that he didn't realize that it was really like there was point where I could yeah I couldn't breathe and I couldn't breathe to tell him that I couldn't breathe so there was a lot of times where like you know it, in my little kid mind I was like this is my last minutes on earth right now so yeah. what I did learn from that though is uh, my anger protects me because I would go into a, a serious rage and uh, that would you know obviously I would not thinking straight I. I have the strength to finally get them off me and uh it would be pretty extreme i would we today we joke about it but uh you know if he wasn't so big i don't i don't know what would happen because i would run right to the kitchen grab a knife chase him around the house Uh, our childhood basement door had like a bunch of stab marks in it and stuff but he was so much bigger he could just hold it shut but uh and he would just wait till i would calm down but i would be so enraged but that taught me so that that protects me because then you know the tormenting would stop and he'd be afraid of me and that made me feel powerful uh right yeah and then i would take that to uh you know kids at school and stuff it didn't take much for me to get set off so if somebody just you know made a little remark to me you know could be me just taking it or i would flip and uh you know hurt the kids in my grade and stuff so I think I, what I, you know, I don't want to make your, you know, I'm a, I have a sibling that's two years younger and I'm sure I did. I know I did awful things and it didn't come from a place of, you know, being evil, but I do think that it's important to highlight the fact that some of the stuff that we, so we only know our own normal, right? Like whatever we grew up with, that's our norm. And it isn't until we start seeing outside of ourselves and, and in, you know, getting introduced to other things in the rest of the world where we start to understand, okay, so looks like this was a little extreme or, you know, people did this here or whatever, like what, where we stand on that spectrum. And I think with siblings, it's really helpful to have these stories and talk about these stories because I often hear people say, I had no idea that XYZ was abuse, or I had no idea that XYZ affected me so much because I knew that the person didn't mean to hurt me. And so therefore, in my head, if they didn't mean to, it shouldn't affect me the way that it does. And so I, you know, I zeroed in on, you know, being bullied in the home because any of us who have siblings know that we, you know, a sibling relationship, you there's often 
<laughs> there's often fighting and bullying and all sorts of cruel, cruel pranks. And, yeah, 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 yeah. So you know that is that is very normal. I have I have four year old twin boys, and the amount of uh, UFC that goes on in our house is a little terrifying. However, I do think that it's important to point out that when a child, you know, you and your brother uh, both very tall, one was a lot heavier than the other. I think it's really important to to point out that when your brain is deprived of oxygen, it doesn't care whether or not it's a joke, it's a sibling, it's a stranger. When you when your brain assesses the situation as terror, as fear, it stores that information that way. And it 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 really it it's one of those things where you can leave the situation knowing, oh, that's my stupid idiot brother. Oh, they were just kidding. Oh, et cetera, et cetera. But your muscles, your brain, the chemicals in your body that are released are the same ones that the person who is in immediate danger is at their last. It's the same chemicals. It's the same hormones. The body's going through the same experience. And so that can leave lasting effects. And it doesn't mean we have to look back and go, oh my gosh, I am the way I am because my brother sat on me and you know tickled me till I didn't like it or locked me. I am the way I am, et cetera, et cetera. But it is really helpful to know. I feel like a lot of people are like, I have no idea what's wrong with me. Like, I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea. I, I had a perfect childhood. I had this. And we can say, well, Yes, you had a loving family that didn't mean, you know, that wasn't trying, you know, that that they didn't intend to abuse you, but your brain experienced abuse. Your brain experienced trauma, even if they didn't mean to do that. And that's kind of what you're describing is like, oh, I had no idea that if you, that, that these experiences I was having, these really scary experiences where you were responding with this anger that those experiences were were trauma, even if even if your brother loves you very much and didn't mean to do that. that yeah, that was really well put. Uh, yeah, because it, it does. It starts to form, you know, our billion year old brains just chalk that up to like, well, it's life or death. It doesn't know the difference between, you know, getting ready to come on a podcast or a train coming at you based on your experiences, it's going to go through the options. Daryl's in trouble here. Disease, disease, right? And so what, what's the option? And, uh, you know, not back at that time, but eventually I did form the option of like, Oh, drink alcohol. This fixes everything. Daryl's back to good. And uh, this fixes everything air quotes. Uh, and I took that and ran with it. And that is. And again, never looked at any of this stuff until I got into recovery, but it's based on, you know, childhood trauma and whatever that may have been to me is needs to be uh, honored uh, in myself, not by anybody else. My, I need to honor that because that's what's going on exactly the way you just eloquently explained it. That, that was a really good way of explaining it for sure. I, yeah, because the, the, when you were talking, literally, uh, I up until, well, I didn't get into recovery, like start going to rehab or anything until into my 30s. So, and the first time we had a group where we sat around and each person, it would take the full group, one person, you know, per day, tell their life story. And when I told my life story, I'm just like, yeah, that's just big brother stuff. And, you know, everybody these are all men you know some of them from jail and stuff like that and they're looking at me going like 
no, dude, that's uh, that was pretty rough. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know, but you know, that's the beauty of of group therapy. People often really people often. I don't want to do group therapy. I don't want to this. That. Why do I need to? Why do I need to listen to somebody else's story in order for me to get better? And the beauty of group therapy is exactly what you described. And I had that same experience too, where I'm describing certain things as like, and then, you know, X, Y, Z happened. And I'm like, okay, moving on, you know, next thing. And someone's like, whoa, 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 do you realize? And I'm like, no, it's not. That's, you know, normal run of the mill. And you know, they're saying no. And then the whole group's like, no, Ashley, that's not normal. Do you see how? And again, it's like coming from a group of people who also did the same things that I, you know, this is not a, these are not soft as it, as I would judge people, right? These are not soft people, right? Like you said, these are guys in jail. These are guys who've, you know, these are, these are, these are people you're sitting in the group with people who think the way that I think. So if they think it's traumatic or they think it's serious or they, you know, if they all, there's consensus there, that is so helpful. And it's, it's truly the power of group therapy that individual therapy does not, it it cannot do that for you the same way that that group of men or that group of women who say to you, Ashley, it's not normal to be sexually assaulted that many times, you know, in your lifetime or whatever, even if you're drinking and even if, you know, like, it's just not normal. Like most people don't experience that or whatever it is. And you have it from a people, a group of people where it's not some doctor who's never blacked out before. It's a group of, you know, it's a group of women who partied as hard as you did or a group of men who partied as hard as you did. Yeah, we all, you know, like to compare it because again, yeah, before I shared my uh, story, I was absolutely comparing myself and judging like these guys are just going to laugh at this. Like, yeah, you know, these guys have gone through real trauma and I've just had a cushy life. Like there's no reason. Yeah, no, I just and and still even to then it took convincing. I was like, I just uh, I used to get into arguments with the counselors saying I just simply enjoy getting wasted it just makes me feel good good times always happen and then they had to quickly explain like okay good times always happen let's talk about the last time you got drunk and i walked them through and it says okay does that sound like a kid oh wait a second well it was good when i was 18 right yeah right right they're like why did it take you 10 years after that to to, wait a second i'm not still 18 oh wait a second i'm supposed to kind of become responsible and yeah all these things that i don't want to do because i don't believe in myself and and it all goes back to the trauma which is uh and i don't i i I, you could Keep me on course for sure. You're going to have to because I get all over the place. I get excited talking about recovery. But there's a Gabor Mady came out with this. I don't know if you've seen his movie lately, The Wisdom of Trauma. And that that has even opened up my eyes even more to, you know, we are also living, uh, you know, our parents, uh, generational trauma. uh, And yeah. Don't even get me started with the whole racial trauma and all that kind of stuff that the whole world is going through right now. And uh, people, it's good that there's discussions like that because people like to fluff over that, even in our own personal stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just got beat up, but let's just forget about that because that's whatever. I shouldn't have got beat up, but that's rock on. Or like, yeah, you're saying sexually abused. Well, it was my fault because I was drunk or what? It's like, no, these are traumatic incidences and the and the whole world's going through it right now, you know? It's one of the things that I experienced or, you know, is that for me, it's one thing, the first, second or third 
time something happens, right? Or maybe you're, you definitely, maybe the first time that you were, you know, suffocated to the point where you couldn't breathe and you were that the first time that happened is like a very vivid experience, but the 10th and the 13th and the 20th, those, your, your system now, your body is experiencing it as traumatic as the first time, but it's also knows the process, right? It, it, it's familiar. So when trauma becomes familiar, I think you cannot live in a state of, of you know, free fall for extended periods of time, no matter where you are. You know, I'm sure people... Even in, in internment camps, you know, they figured out a routine. They figured out they, they had to, you know, they applied some semblance of normalcy because you can't, your, your, your adrenal glands cannot stay in a heightened state of that level of fear for, you know, six months at a time, right? So your body figures out a way to adapt even in any type of trauma. And, so what I find is that anything that I experienced that went on for a long period of time, it was harder for me to really pull that apart because I did find a way to normalize whatever that thing was, normalize the anger I had, normalize because I too... um I was a rager and I too, you know, that was one of my amends when I got sober was that I would never lay a hand on anyone in my family ever again. And, you know, I mean, I was 19 when I got sober that, and, and a young woman, not the, you know, to, in order for that to be like one of the main amends that I made, you know, it, it indicates to you how serious my rage was. But again, I normalized so many things if they were things that happened over and over and over and over again, because I had to, right? And and I think that that's where we get when, by the time we get into recovery, so many of us have normalized so many things, whether it's blacking out, waking up places we don't remember, drinking and driving, car accidents, fights, whatever it is. We have normalized those things because we had to. And so then trying to convince us that it's abnormal is this whole other, you know, it's this whole other unraveling process that it sounds like you, you went through with this. Yeah. And it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because, you know, the first time it happens, it's kind of like, and then as soon as it starts to become normal, well, normal just means that's what you believe, I guess. So you just start going through the actions of what you believe. I told everybody, I, you know, I went to rehab, then I relapsed, and I was just like, yes, like this is exactly how I'm going to die. Like, I, I know yeah. what my story is. And it's like, oh, wow, like, uh, you know, 13 years into recovery, I'm just like, I have no idea what my story is. And I'm super excited about it because things just keep getting better and better because not because I'm, well, I, yes, I'm a different person, but I still have all the same you know, same lived experiences and everything. And I just have more things in my more coping strategies in my toolbox rather to say, you know, well, this has happened. Like now, if something I, I first of all, I recognize if something's kind of negative in my life and I'm like, well, I don't want that to happen again. So let's figure out, is it me? Is it them? Is it the, you know, is it just chance? What is it? That's why, again, you talk about, uh, group therapy uh my number one thing if anybody is like trying is struggling and trying to get out of the hole they're in is start by reaching out to one person and have that person you know uh, the more people that you can have that have the same 
values in their life as you do. Because if you think about it, you know, when we're using those people, we sought out the people that have the same values as we do, which is like, you know, lying, stealing, and just where can I get more and more and more? And your value is in, you know, am I holding? If I'm not, then I'm kind of useless and we need to find something. But you know, uh, you know, they talk about higher power. Uh, a lot of people struggle with that. But my higher power simply is love uh, because I can see that in my head. I can see the values behind that. Getting out of self, helping others, you know, the joy. Just, just uh, I don't know. I could go on about love. Uh, but that's just kind of like where I see my higher power. And, and, and yeah, I just, I just think... Uh, if we if we start believing, it, it, there's tons of power in love too. Like there's, I feel so powerful living with love because there's forgiveness, and that was a hard hard thing for me to uh, find a concept of because it, we we can wake up. One thing we like we don't have a lot of choices. Like to you know in this world, like a lot of things will happen. We don't have control over a lot of things. Uh, that's what I mean. We have lots of choices. We don't have a lot of control over things. But the thing we do have control over is whether we wake up and we want to be, you know, a victim or a hero of the day. And I always try to choose to be a hero today. And it's not easy all the time because, you know, I'm human and, you know, you're not always going to wake up feeling 100% or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just try to explain to people having a morning routine and a night routine keeps things pretty consistent. And, you know, you just start to do that with muscle memory. That becomes the new normal. And then uh, you can start to take on the day way easier, way cope with things that come your way, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the really cool things about you sharing your story and, you know, people can't see you right now, but you're, you're, you're sitting in front of a drum set is that you have, you know, you are not the person who the typical person that they think of talking about love and feelings and higher power. And although you are Canadian, so, you know, <laughs> that that's the, you know, we, we do expect you to be kind, but I think, you know, being a drummer in a rock band and, and having that sort of like hard, what, what other people would perceive as hard persona, I think is one of the coolest things about being in, particularly men in recovery is that you get this other side of them that is not the norm as we're, you know, as we're talking about norms. And I I love that you're still willing to talk about that and willing to, you know, in, incorporate all those things. You started drumming really young. How did that, how did drumming stay consistent or not for you throughout your addiction? Yeah, kind of not, but kind of. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's Well, I guess it's very spiritual. You go back to the spiritual thing. Like I talk to, uh, sometimes I'll be given drum lessons in my my students will sometimes say, is this a counseling session or what's going on here? Are we learning drums? Because uh, to me, it's a very spiritual thing. It's one, like I talked about morning routine. I wake up and I mean, there's no more mindful practice than putting on a metronome and just sitting there with two pairs of like, you know, wood, right? And uh, just trying to listening to the sound, being in time, you're breathing and everything's connected and uh, so I guess, uh, you know, 
by the grace of God, uh, drumming never really left me throughout my, I did always tell myself, uh, you know, here we go back to like, well, I have to get drunk in order to feel like doing anything. Cause really like waking up in the morning after, you know, it well into my addiction was just like, I wish I didn't wake up. So like to be motivated to do anything. So, but you know, once I always stayed playing drums, I, I was not, I, you know, uh, it, it was always a big thing, I guess. Yeah. You know, you just said like, I'm sitting behind a drum set, but yeah, I, about 11 years old, I, I stated, I'm going to be a rock star when I grow up. Like I didn't want to be anything else. Uh, I'm sure my parents were happy about that, but I mean, they were always very supportive and, uh, and it, it was not just a phase, like it just kept going. It just fed me with everything. It was something that I called my own too. My brother wasn't really interested in uh, music. So uh, yeah, it, it, I, I was very interested. And well up to like 18, my, my life as a teenager was pretty much like I was into wrestling. So I was very into being healthy. I used to look at other kids that smoke cigarettes like, that's crazy. Smoking cigarettes, you're going to die. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it. Right? Somebody would smoke cigarettes. I was all about like running and working out. I was probably addicted to working out, though, if you look at it. Right. But I mean, I remember Friday nights, people would, uh, you know, uh, say, come on, let's go to a party. And I didn't even know what a party was at that time. I would just be, no, I'm going to be a rock star. Like I would be telling my friends, I'm going to be a rock star. I got to practice up in the attic. And that's what I did Friday, Saturday nights. It was also a way probably for me to get accepted because when I did start going to parties, it was because I was invited to go play music. So my band would show up. Right. I'd have like 24 Orange Pop and uh, we'd play some Metallica. And and that's where I learned, too, that, uh, you know, I was afraid of people that drank uh, because, you know, I'd see my friends in the day in school and they're just being them and then all of a sudden it's like fights breaking out people are just violently sick people treating girls like shit and uh you know just i can't even understand half of what these people are saying and uh so i i would play my drums and i would kind of get the hell out of there because I, I was scared i was terrified because it was very unpredictable and even to this day i i'm a little uneasy uh but I, I think it, that's how I got accepted, though. I mean, my brother's friends started coming over and they were just like, yeah, Daryl can play, you know, the new Red Hot Chili, but he could play Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More and stuff like that. So right. they were always saying, you got to get your brother over to the house. And because my brother moved out by then and uh, they pretty much had a party house and I would go over there with my drums and entertain, I guess. If I <laughs> so it was, I got accepted that way. So right. it was very important to me. To just always play. I, I was I growing as a drummer? Like, I mean, well, actually, within the last five years, I've really buckled down and I'm just like doing a bunch of stuff on the drums that I should have been doing when I was like seven years old. But whatever, I'm having fun with the process, right? So uh, it's yeah, worked out, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's been my highest highs and my lowest lows, too. Like, music, uh, I don't know. I think if you ask any musician, it's probably kind of like that. Um, I do have the you know, the toolbox to kind of deal with, you know, just uh, being in a band is really tough. It's like a family. It's like a marriage and a family and uh, all, you know, communication 101 right there. So, uh, yeah, it's funny that you say that about uh, men in recovery. Cause yeah, my wife and my band, uh, I usually end up being the, uh, 
uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, like, you, you know, the, the mediator, the mediator, the mediator. Yeah. You're going to have to do that a lot with me. I forget <laughs> words all the time. But yeah, my wife was like, man, I've never seen a man express his feelings so much. And we, we always laugh. We always say uh, that I'm, I'm the female of the uh, relationship because <laughs> I'm always get, trying to get her to talk like I know. You know, you seem uneasy. Let's just, uh, let's talk. Right. Let's talk it through. Let's talk. Yeah. 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 Cause there's, you know, there's tools and there's, there's norms that we all fall into and, 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 you know, men are supposed to be feeling less. Women are supposed to have too many feelings. Right. So we all sort of those norms and a lot of those get smashed in recovery, which is, which is really cool and scary, you know, going into it, but I found it to be very rewarding. You you talked about alcohol being scary and unpredictable, but you progressed from alcohol. You ended up, you know, you ended up as an IV user. How did you know? I, one thing I I I was also um, I was an IV heroin addict, and I also talk about uh, how like I was terrified of needles. And like if you had told me, if you had told anyone that that's where I was going to end up, they would not have believed you until you know sh- shortly before that happened. And so you know, a question I get asked, which I'm sure you've probably have been asked as well, is like, how did you go from this to that? Like, how did you go from being scared of the unpredictability of alcohol and what it did to your friends to, you know, shooting meth and heroin? What, what was, what was that thing that allowed you to step over that next, I'll never do that, you know, that next yet? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, again, yeah. Cause it's, it, they do say it's always going to be a, a pro, like a progression, right? Um, but uh, it, it was definitely years. I mean, uh, weed and things and alcohol were all kind of introduced roughly around the same time. So it's like what you said. Well, at least I'm not doing blah, blah, blah. So uh, when I moved out on my own, it's values, right? So like we just allow values to kind of change and uh you know some of the values that started well at least i don't borrow money like you know well as soon as i moved out on my own i realized how much cheese and meat costs and rent and it's like whoa i my restaurant job is not affording me to drink 24 beers every night and do all this rest of this stuff so uh, i quickly chose the beer all the time because you know again back to our billion year old brain that's the way i live if i don't have beer then like i can't talk to people i'm not interesting i'm back to that scared person that feels like crap about themselves so the big priority here is let's get the sauce that fixes everything and then we'll worry about the rest and worrying about the rest would be okay well let's borrow some money hey that works and quickly you're owing your whole paycheck back and then you know you get to a party and it's like well at least i don't do this and then it's like introduced and it's like well let's give it a try um and being so afraid of people that you know were using i just decided like pretty much from the first night i'll be the guy that uses so i'd be the king of the party and i lived up to that uh you know tenfold uh you know it was like the cheer i always laughed at cheers because i was like wow like norm right norm d D man became my name literally like a d man that's like a superhero right so that's how i saw like i can do anything but as long as I have the drugs and the alcohol, I can do anything, 
without that, I'm, I told myself I'm useless and I'm not even worth anything. So I, and the danger of that, and this is a hundred percent guaranteed. And this is why I go back to love because love is in here. Uh, just kind of like what you're talking about men and everybody there's tons is like, it's infinite. Uh, love is in us. And I know this sounds a little hairy fairy, maybe, but it really is. It's a choice, right? And as long as I'm breathing, I can either choose love or hate. And um, so, but with drugs or alcohol or anything outside ourselves, I've, I, so I read a book, Happiness Now, which is a great book. Uh, but he always said, ego stands for everything good outside. So it's like, and that's going to end. Like that's, that's going to deplete. And if you're always needing, 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 uh, a state of need always needs. It's always going to need more. So that's where, yeah, I, I, uh, sorry, I got off track there. But uh, yeah, it, it's just, uh, I, I just, the progression there is just needing more, needing more, needing more. Uh, my friend eventually came up to me one night. I was drunk and he said, I think you'd probably like this. Do you want to try it? And he shot me up and he was absolutely right. And then <laughs> now it's like needing more of that and right. still drinking. Drinking was always like, I know always people, yeah, people always like, what's your drug of choice, brah? I always think that's kind of funny, that question, but like, uh, I just started telling everybody the answer to that question is more. My drug of choice was more. Just give me more of whatever's happening and take me out of myself. You know, now I, uh, you know, I think, well, the key to long lasting sobriety, like people can sober up, people can quit whatever they're going to use, but I would never be able to last if I wanted to do something, but force myself not to, I think that would always get overtaken. So I always say like the secret to long lasting sobriety and thriving in life is spirituality. And I think that goes for everybody across the board in the whole wide world, you know, and then people start relating that to like, well, religion, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's not, it's simply, it could be just taking a breath, a deep breath, calming yourself down, just being content in your body, slowing down time. You know, me picking up my drums. This is very spiritual when I'm behind uh, my drum kit or even with a guitar or uh, even hanging out with people, which used to f make me afraid. I am very afraid of social situations. Still to this day, I always, I'm running. My wife laughs at me. She's like, okay, we have social situation coming up. How, how many uh, conversations have you already walk yourself through like then they're gonna ask this and then i'm gonna answer this and then they're gonna say <laughs> and it's just so exhausting and i just need to you know it's it's an ongoing it's always gonna yeah. be there it's always gonna be there but today i can cope with that kind of stuff you know and, and laugh at myself and things like that i feel like i get i get in i have arguments before i have the argument or you know and sometimes i'll i'll sometimes i'll have a conversation with somebody in my head so then I don't have the conversation. I'll say like, someone will say to me, like, why didn't you talk to me? I'm like, oh, I did. I had the whole conversation in my head. I didn't need to talk to you. hundred percent. Like every day <laughs> I do that. I do that every day. I knew what you were going to say. So didn't have the conversation with you. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and they're like, oh, that's not what I was going to say. I'm like, oh shit, I got the conversation wrong. And sometimes you do know what they're going to say and it's still valuable to have the conversation. That was actually something interesting that I learned, which was, yeah, I knew what you were going to say. It's for some reason it was still better when we had the conversation yeah. and, 
and, you know, getting through those fears and this spirituality stuff can really freak people out. And I, it really freaked me out in the beginning. I felt like, you know, I had this disease of more, this serious, deadly, progressive addiction problem that could attach itself to anything. And I was being told that spirituality and, you know, praying was going to help me. And that really pissed me off and also concerned me for how I was going to survive. And I think it's something that I've gotten closer to and, and had more understanding around the longer I'm sober, because as you said, with the ego, E-G-O, right? Everything. What did you say? It was everything uh, good outside, good outside, everything good outside. Yes. And I experiencing that, experiencing that everything outside of yourself that's good or bad, when that is the reliance, it doesn't, it doesn't hold. And it isn't the thing that keeps you sober. And I've had situations where everything good was outside me. And then I traveled or I moved or something changed. And then the whole thing was a house of cards and came down. And I felt like I wasn't able to handle that. And it just showed me, oh my gosh, I'm so reliant on all these things outside of myself to work perfectly. I've set it all up. I've set up all these, I've arranged the play and I've arranged my life. And this is with, you know, over a decade of sobriety, I've arranged everything so that it works perfectly. And when everything works perfectly, I'm good, right? I'm great. Sobriety is great. But then when those things fall, when one of those pillars falls, I'm totally destabilized in a way that doesn't feel safe. And I started to under, you know, that really pointed out to me that spirituality component where I was lacking and really needed to put more work into that. And I think that's been every year, it's like, a little bit, I understand a little bit more the importance of the spirituality piece. But when I started, when I first got sober, it was just like getting the substances out of my body. That was the best I could do. And the, like, I was just not in APAA, like AP recovery, you know, whatever advanced, that was just not where I had to, it was like one day, you know, just getting the substances. That was the doing the bare minimum, the best I can do. And over time I've, you know, I get to kind of upgrade my recovery program. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why, like, uh, I mean, I, I, I kind of have a love hate relationship with AA a little bit and I don't know if, uh, if whatever, I'll, I'll debate it all day long. That's my experience. Uh, it's absolutely saved my life. I did the 12 steps with a group, uh, if anybody ever comes to me, I would absolutely say start with AA and, and it may stick and it may not. And, uh, I, I, and the reason I know that's not the only way that's, that's where I have a little bit of an issue because there are some people in there that, well, th- hey, they will judge. And it, I've seen people sober. Uh, like I saw one guy saying, yeah, I've been sober for 10 years. I feel great. Blah, blah, blah. I don't go to AA and then somebody from AA said, well, you don't have real recovery. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? You can't judge that at all. Like it, if you're living a good life and you're happy, then keep going, try keep going. Uh, I, I agree with you. I never want to stop learning and stop seeing different ways. I worked at a youth rehab and those kids taught me that there's a hundred ways to skin a cat because I, I I was in early recovery. I was saying, no, you you have to go to AA. You have to just, you know, 
stop everything. I, I, I was in school to go to there uh, to get a job in in a recovery field, right? And uh, it came to a, a, a part in the course where it was ta- a harm reduction. And I was just straight up, no, nah, you need to, I don't understand this at all. Like the only way to stay sober is to not use anything. So the teacher just asked me one simple question. How long did it take you to get your first year of sobriety? And I, well, six years. That's harm reduction, Daryl. Like each time you're just trying to improve a little bit better, a little bit better. But I, I the reason I talked about AA though, is just because I think it's just the best way like a, the quickest way, not the best way, but it's just you instantly have a support group, like a support people it, to have people around you. I believe in the beginning is just the most important thing. Like whoever it may be, uh, hell, like when I was in my deepest of deepest, uh, addictions, living by myself, uh, I was just fixated on like ending things. And my cat came up. I might actually get emotional right here. And it got on my chest and, you know, the love that I had, I had no love for anything, but I had my damn love for my cat. And it was like, who the hell is going to feed you in the morning? I swear to God to this day that that cat saved my life. So that's support. It looks different all the way, but the best thing it can do. And I know people who are, you know, using right now and, I remember what it's like. It's like, yeah, I'll do this and I'll do that, but I will not do that. And I'm not going to, but if you can really open up your mind and just, you know, uh, you know, let go and go to some rehab, some kind of a rehab, uh, hopefully an accredited one. Uh, and uh, you have an instant support group. You have instant people with education on the matter. You have an instant program and to me a program defined means many different goals and i think that's super important because uh it occurred to me one day i'm like man so many people rehab uh, relapse because they're not aware that they achieved their goal it's just the same as working out and stuff like you always or even for the musicians anything to progress anything to get stronger better uh, you have to realize when you've achieved the goal and then move on to the next. So, for instance, we all can say, I'm not going to drink today, uh, and you don't drink. Well, your goal is achieved. The problem is now a lot of people will just be like white-knuckling. Well, I want to drink, but I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. And how long is that going to last for? Or it's like, okay, I achieved that goal. What's the next goal? Okay, so the next goal would be go into a rehab, go get support, create a program of progressive goals that gets you to the next step, next step, next step, next step. And I mean, in AA, you have that, you have the steps. I always tell people like, yo, I'll go into these meetings. I'm going to all these meetings and I still just want to drink. Uh, have you done the steps? Well, no, but I go to the meetings. I'm like, well, you're not doing a program. The program to me, AA is the 12 steps. If you're not doing the 12 steps, you're not doing the AA program. The meetings, in my opinion, are the support in order to do the steps. And you all kind of go and compare, hey, how, you know, how is step four going for you? And did you do this? And how did you feel when this happened? And I don't understand step three, you know. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, friends. Ashley Loeb Blassengame here. 
I want to let you in on an upcoming podcast that I will be on with my friend MJ Gottlieb, who is a lifelong entrepreneur and the co-founder of Lucid App, L-O-O-S-I-D App, which was created for those who choose to live a sober lifestyle. Lucid was born out of the need to unite the sober community and bring together those people in recovery and battling addiction, as well as those who choose to live a sober lifestyle for other reasons. Lucid's vision is to create a comprehensive digital platform for the sober community. I had the honor and privilege of doing an interview with MJ, which was really a more vulnerable interview than I usually do. I hope that people tune in for this. It is going to be released on the Lucid app on August 30th, 2021. So go to your app store and download the Lucid app, L-O-O-S-I-D app to listen to the interview. Check it out. Thanks, friends. There's also something you said, like, I still want to drink, but do you need to drink? Like when I was using and in the throes, like I needed to use, I needed to drink. It was not, you know, it wasn't a want. It was, it was a need. Lifeline. Yep. I I felt like I was going to die if I did not get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the want has changed over, over time. You know, I, there have been times, same with, you know, smoking cigarettes or uh, other things. It's like, there have been times where I have wanted to drink or wanted to smoke or wanted to whatever it was, wanted to shoot heroin, but I didn't need to. And that's the difference, right? The difference is is the need. And I think over time that want goes away, uh, the need goes away first, and then the want starts to go away, right? But it may not ever fully go away. And I think people expect that the want is going to go away along with the need, and that happens for a lot of people. It does. I'm not one of those people who where it just went away. It just didn't. But the need went away. And that I needed that I needed that to happen first. And, you know, it's you gotta start with you gotta start with like you said, you can't be successful if you don't define your success, right? If you don't, because you'll just pass it and have no idea that that you succeeded. Some people, you know, they they you know, make it to the MBA, but their goal was to make it to the Olympics. Well, for many people, you make it to the MBA, that's success. But for them, you know, if making it to the Olympics was the success, right? Well, it's, it's how you define it. And, and, and defining that success is really important. And for a long time, me defining success was just putting another day together. It didn't matter, you know, trying not to get arrested, putting another day together, don't hit anyone. I mean, seriously, that was like the best, that was the best I could do. And then it gets more complex, right? We upgrade our sobriety over time. And, you know, the thing with AA and 12 step, which I will say as someone who's been going to 12 step meetings for over 20 years and, you know, there are a lot of people and opinions in in program the same way there are a lot of opinions in all the religions of the world right you know how people say hey these extremists over here they don't represent our religion right we say we don't these extremists these these people over here they don't represent our religion they don't represent well it's the same thing with 12 step there are a lot of people who say a lot of dumb shit that has nothing that is not you know either in the in the 12 step literature that's why people are so serious about 12 step literature like approved literature because you know so many people want to make it really clear like 
if you don't go to AA or you don't go to 12 step, that doesn't mean that you're not sober. That doesn't mean you're not, you know, any of that you're not in recovery. Like you said, 12 step in my experience working in the field, having been to lots of different types of meetings, having created a support group, you know, platform called community myself, AA is the fastest. It's the fastest. You're and anywhere I move, I can go to a you know an AA meeting and I can meet a group of people that are like me. When I traveled abroad, I just went to an AA meeting. I met a group. You know, it's the fastest for sure. There's no question. If it's not for you though, that's okay. I always suggest that people go to, you know, try to go to a bunch of different meetings, different types of meetings, because that one old timer in the corner who's just saying that whatever shit he wants to say. He is not, he is not AA. He is a, you know, a person in AA the same way that, you know, you go to a church and that one old guy in the corner saying whatever they're saying about the religion, they aren't the religion either. So those, those things are important, but I, I a hundred percent agree with you that it's important. It's important to, you know, that there can be a love hate relationship with someone. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, and I have, I, well, I mean, life's not over, but I know I'm going to have lifelong relationship and I, I don't personally go to AA anymore. I, I, it, again, it, like recovery is a process, right? So, but each and every way I've always had support around me, people yes. I can throw ideas off of. And even though I don't, I still have like great relationships with, the people that I've met there. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the people that you do meet there, most of them will give them the shirt, give you the shirt off their back. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I literally, the step study I went to, this is when I was just like, the recovery gods were just answering my every question. I was just on this wave of recovery and life changing moments. And uh, when it's my sponsor signed me up to a uh, step uh, 12 separate, like uh, the, the meeting, like we're doing the 12 steps. That's why you're going there is we're actually going to go through the 12 steps together. Uh, step three, like absolutely changed my life. And it was the meeting. I was like, we have homework. And I was just like, made a decision to my, okay, I made a decision. Like, whip do doo I got nothing to add to this meeting tonight. I'm not even going to go. I did talk myself into going and uh, yeah, they just kind of, talked me through it and just said, just start out with like praying. And then, then I realized that step is meant to make a decision probably, well, depending on where your life is, maybe a thousand times a day, make a decision. This is not mine. Like I'm not dealing with that. Like, but in that same step study, it was, uh, I was just on my way out of rehab. So transitioning back into real life, trying to get a job. And, uh, there was one job that I wanted just because it opened up my night to go to, just a meeting every single night. And, uh, but I needed a car. I didn't get my license until I was in recovery. So like 35 was when I finally got my license. Um, but, uh, I needed a car to get there. And, uh, I was just like, yeah, what am I going to do here? Facebook was, <laughs> that's funny. I was just starting Facebook back then. And, uh, he messaged a guy messaged me and said, I was about to sell my car for like, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Do you just want it? Kind of, I was just like, what's going on here, man? Like, you're just going to give me a car. He's like, absolutely, man. I know it will mean more to you than 200 bucks will mean to me. 
And, uh, oh my God, 200 bucks. Did it have an engine? Well, he was just getting ready to scrap it, basically. And I don't know why, because that thing lasted me probably about 10 years. And it was, yeah, it, it lasted me great. But uh, yeah, it got me to work. And I was allowed to take the job, gave me the capability of taking that job. And uh, I quickly got fired from that job a few months later because <laughs> it, <was> <laughs> it was a factory job that I was just, uh, you know, again, Still trying to rewrite my story. I I had, you know, I always took jobs that I just thought were easy to get. I worked in a factory when I was using and uh, that just was not cutting it. So like five minutes in that factory felt like five hours. And I was just like, ah, and it was uh, humbling because, you know, I found myself calling in and I was like, I couldn't blame being drunk now. And uh, they called me in the office. They said, you're a great worker when you're here. Because I didn't want to. It was a quota, right? So it was just like blasting out parts, welding, just quick welds. And uh, I didn't want to stand around. So my coworkers were pissed at me because I was just smashing quota. And they're like, they're going to move the quota up. And you got to chill out. And I'm, I'm not standing around. And then, uh, But they were like, yeah, you're a good worker when you're here. But we're going to have to let you go because you're never really here. And then that's when I was like, what, what am I passionate about? It forced me to really look at what I'm passionate about. Music, obviously, was the first thing. But I was like, that's not paying the bills. And uh, so I, wait a second, recovery. <laughs> recovery is like way more than everything. So, yeah, I went back to school. And, uh, yeah, I ended up uh, working at a youth rehab for the seven years after that. Wow. And, and now, you know, your, your dream of being a rock star, I was, I was actually, so you're in a band, uh, Bonds of Mara and I, I am, a, I am like a huge, uh, rock heavy metal fan. And, and so I'm, I'm going to see, I love Metallica and I'm going to see Metallica for the first time in October Two they're doing a festival two nights in a row. And my husband, got me tickets and he got me a piece of jewelry, which I also love diamonds. He, he <laughs> got me a piece. He got me a piece of jewelry. My birthday and Christmas are right next to each other. And he got me a piece of jewelry and he got me tickets to Metallica. And I sobbed over the tickets of Metallica. Uh, um, you haven't <laughs> like I, seen Metallica live, eh? I, can you believe oh, that? Wow. I, yeah, you're you're in for a treat. You're in for a treat. I'm so they're they're headlining two nights in a row, and so yeah, like he flew me when we were dating. He flew me to a Tool concert, and so like it's like it's you know. Well, I and way off topic, but last night did you hear Joey Jorgensen passed away? The dr- I did, I did, I did, and I was really that's I was, a bummer. That's a bummer. Yeah, and I was really relieved to that I I had seen Slipknot uh, back in back in there like when they were at the top of their game. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I checked out your band really good. Thanks. I liked the, uh, sec killed, killed, the love. killed. Yes. That's the, that was my, I listened to both songs, but I liked that one a lot and, uh, was listening to your, your, uh, your drum skills in those. And, and, and you, so that dream of being a rock, this is all to say that the dream of being a rock star and, and being part of the music you love and doing something you love that even that, that didn't go away. And that has come to, you know, you have been able to make something of that. You want to tell us a little bit about that, about your bands and, and what's been, what's been going on. Well, yeah. And again, like, so I, I I quit that all to being in recovery because I I did, I just started gradually flipping this as much as like, you know, I was started drinking and you start getting into deeper drugs. It 
the opposite can happen too, where it's like you start out just sober. And like you said, you're just trying to get, I was like, yeah, one day at a time. And I was like, one day, I mean, okay. I made one hour. 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And, and then you start, you know, you're, surrounding yourself you attract people into your life with the same values and it's what you put out there and again i love right if you put out love all those same values and you have focus and direction and it does when especially like i hate to make it sound like have focus and direction and work hard i can't stand when you know somebody's like 20 years sober and they're like every day struggle we're doing it we're doing the hard work i was like I'm thinking to myself, like, it's not hard work, right? Like, to be honest, I'm not waking up. I don't know when the last time I woke up going, man, I hope I don't drink today. It's like, and I'm going into pubs with my wife and playing music. And it's because I'm doing, I did the work and I continue to do the work. And it's, uh, it's hard to describe unless you're in it. Right. But I mean, it's the same thing. It's just a pro, it's a, it's a process and uh, you, you know, you do the work and eventually it just becomes the way it becomes a lifestyle and you just start doing the things that you need to do. People are going to, uh, you know, be attracted to you with the same uh, goals. Like if you, I always tell people, if you want to go to the gym, it's probably best not to hang out with a bunch of people that, uh, you know, uh, chocolate cakes and not like, uh, let's eat chocolate cake all day long and sit on the couch and find value in that. And that's fine. If you find value in that, that's awesome. But that's probably not the people that are going to get your ass over to the gym. So you want, if you're hanging out, so, uh, yeah, I continued to do music and uh, then just more focused became you know in sobriety i always said like because again values back when i was a kid was like motley crew what's their values sex drugs rock and roll and i'm like i'm never gonna have kids and i'm never gonna have a wife and and now i have an awesome and amazing wife it's it's amazing uh i never i just get choked up because like i honestly do remember like i do remember going to bed wishing like I wouldn't wake up the next day and trying to get the balls to just do enough to just finish my life. And I remember waking up every morning sighing and just like, is there beer in the fridge? At least maybe that's something to live for kind of deal. And now like life is just so amazing. The worst thing about my life is I don't get much sleep because when I wake up, it's like, Christmas. It's like, okay, I get to do this today and I get to do this today and I can't wait. Like, let's bring on the day. Like, let's get going. But uh, my wife sings and uh, I, I play guitar for her and we do a little way. We play in pubs and weddings and stuff like that. And uh, she's, a, she's a paramedic full-time. No, but I recently retired though, like PTSD. And again, she's in recovery too. So we could really relate. And I felt like I was able to help her and be a sounding board and stuff for anything recovery. Right. Um, have wait question. Have you ever been somewhere where she's singing, you're playing and she has to drop the mic and be a paramedic. That's crazy that you asked that. Uh, there is one, one time where I, a guy, he became a friend, like he was a regular at this pub and we became kind of friends. We're like, oh, he's here. And he had too much drink to drink the one night. We were packing up and he was a very big guy. And he went, bop, boom, smashed his head. And she ran over, but it was, she was already diagnosed with PTSD and she was uh, very much that 
set her back a little bit because she mm. she yeah it was it's long it's a lot of uh, layers to it but it did it she didn't want to she didn't want to but then she was kind of stuck with that struggle like everybody looked at her because they knew her background and she's just like i'm not that person i don't want to be that person anymore i can't be that person anymore uh, Interesting. So yeah, it's because a lot of people don't recognize that as an it's an injury, right? So it's like, would, would you ask, you know, if Tom Brady broke his leg, would you, okay, the quarterback just went down, everybody's going to look at Tom Brady and go play the game? They'd be no, of course not. That guy's got a broken leg. Okay, who else can we throw in? Everybody looked at her, and it's like, I I have a broken leg. You just can't see it. Right. So she really did every. She was like almost anybody else would have been more qualified to take care of that guy right there. She obviously knows everything kicked in, but like, yeah, that's funny that you asked that question because, uh, yeah, that happened, it, and it was weird too. I'm like, stuff just happens. I, I think that vibe, right? The vibrations of like, she'll always come back. She'll be like, I just went by a car wreck, and I'm like. I've never driven by a car. Like, I mean, I've seen accidents. <laughs> right, like, right, right. We'll be having dinner and somebody will have a heart attack over. It. I'm like, that doesn't, you guys bring this into your life somehow. Totally. Like, it's a vibration totally. that you guys are on. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. I just kept continuing playing because this is what I love. And I made a decision and I'm going to focus on that. And then, yeah, I had another band was getting, they're a cartoon or whatever. And they were getting, uh, they needed a drummer. So, uh, I went and auditioned for them again. That would be something in, in my addiction I wouldn't do. Like it would be too afraid. So it, I learned the parts. I went audition, got the part, uh, and then one of the the bassists from Bonzamara, him and I went way back, and uh, they needed a drummer. And he saw that I was still drumming online, so he reached out and said, "Do you want to audition?" And yeah, I, after I was just supposed to fill in for some gigs. And uh, a lot of uh, we got along great. And a lot of my recovery story, because he knew me back in the day when I was just going and uh, he said, you know, he was like, you have actually inspired me. And uh, and yeah, the singer was into recovery and it was all that was a lot of the bond and uh, the bonds, the bonds of our. But uh, yeah, that was a lot of the bond. <laughs> and uh, they kind of decided that they wanted that to be the lineup, and they offered me the full time gig. And That's yeah, amazing. and I kind of weaned my way out of my day job, and now I basically spend a lot of time behind my drum kit trying to just get better. We have record. We're going to be recording a full album. Uh, things that COVID has slowed everything down. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, thing, it seems like the world's opening up again a little bit. Metallica, you're going to go see Metallica. And uh, yeah, we're writing uh, to record a full album and get in there and then hopefully get out to tour because I love touring. It's awesome. Playing live is just the most spiritual, magical thing in the whole world. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I wish I could play an instrument. Have you... So Bonzamara, did you tour with them at all before COVID? Yeah, the tour got shut down. Well, we made it to, we had one more show and and it was just like, we actually took a couple of videos offline because we, we didn't know the severity of it. We were being, we were being jackasses and we fully uh, took accountability for that because we we could see, you know, the shows and then it's like, 
uh, like, oh, now the audience is kind of cut in half. What the hell is this? And four dudes in a car, right? We're all like, screw this. We'll keep going. Not really listening to the news and just kind of hearing bits and pieces and just not really taking it too serious. Uh, yeah, there, we did. We went live and we were just like, okay, we need everybody to come out. Screw COVID. And it's like, yeah, no, maybe that's not a good message to be putting out there. Yeah, yeah. It was like super early though, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, then actually it was that gig where we saw like, it was just, okay, we got to start looking at this, what's happening and uh, what's responsible. So we had one more gig and we canceled it. And uh, all my drum students called me up pretty much in the same day and said, like, I guess we're not allowed to come over. And yeah, we, you know, I wasn't really doing Zoom or anything yet or so yeah. it was all in person and it's crazy how the world's changed in well, it's pretty much two years. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's been, it's, you know, I, I think of kind of that thing we were talking about earlier where like, I think a lot of us couldn't, at least I couldn't sustain that level of fear for a long period of time, you know, for months and months, a year. And so that, you know, get uh, getting adjusted to the trauma of COVID and, and all the things that were going on has been, you know, part of the story over the last couple of years because we just, I just couldn't stay afraid the same way. So I had to like train my brain to listen and, and acknowledge because like the, the fear had to go somewhere. I just couldn't, I couldn't stay that level. I, that, that level of vigilance just didn't stick with me. I couldn't. Well, I think uh, I do notice like a lot of my friends that are in recovery have handled it, you know, I hate to compare, but better than people that aren't <laughs> just because, yeah. you know, we, we already have a routine. We already have the, you know, putting things into perspective. Uh, just think of the serenity prayer, like <laughs> do, we have no control over this. Uh, yeah. You just do what you can do and yeah, leave the rest to whatever is going to happen. Like you can only take care of yourself. And since then too, I've kind of, uh, like, well, when COVID did happen, I I thought of myself, I was like, man, like to me, the opposite of recovery is isolation. And so I'm like, here's the government, the government, the world is telling us to isolate basically. And so I was thinking if I was using right now, that would be a really, really scary place. So I tried to use social media as much as possible. Just I, I went live like every day, uh, just telling my story and just kind of giving as many tips as I could as to, you know, how addiction works and how recovery works and possible things to do within this situation. And, and the, you know, my wife had to remind me is, uh, you know, first of all, why are you doing this? I always remember why you're doing it. Because when you don't get the comments and the likes and the stuff like that, it's just kind of like, is anybody even listening to me? There's a waste of time. But she also said, think of the subject you're talking about. Like, nobody's just going to come right out and say, hey, yeah, I'm dealing with that. Like, it is all in silence. And I do, I do have a lot of people, you know, reaching out to me every day saying, like, you know, asking, you know, can I talk to you? Uh, this is happening. What's your opinion? Just things like that. And so I, I do know that, like, eh, the reason I'm saying this, I just think if anybody's in recovery and you think that you can't help somebody by telling your story, I would say bullshit to that. And I would say your story is your gift. And, you know, if if you're comfortable with it, you know, shout it from the rooftop because you're going to save somebody's life. Guaranteed, you are going to save somebody's life. Yeah, yeah. 
what would you say, you know, I think this is an important piece to have a musician talk about. What would you say to the people who say, I can't get sober because then I lose my creativity, that, that creativity that I'm not, I, I won't be able to play music or draw or whatever their creativity is, but particularly musicians, I won't be able to write music, have that inspiration if I'm not loaded. Yeah, uh, you know, and that's really... You almost have to talk. It's like an individual basis because I, I, I mean, I thought that way. Like in my addiction, it's just uh, showing up every day. There's an awesome book. I would tell everybody, and it's a really easy read. Is uh, the War of Art, not the Art of War, the War of Art. Uh, Stephen I was literally Hartsfield. just thinking of that of that book. Yep, man, it's a great book. Uh, it's just basically get your ass. In the seat is just the idea of that. And he talks about muse and that's what, so the way I would describe it, I would just say like, again, we go back to spirituality. Uh, This is where like, you know, to each their own, but you know, people are just like, you don't even smoke weed, man. Come on, you smoke weed. And I I don't because I, I, I know myself, I know what it would lead to. But more importantly is I am in touch with my spiritual side. And, and that's where he talks about the, this muse and whatever that muse is, it could be whatever you might hear a song and that inspires a poem or like some talking to somebody. It's whatever your muse is. But when you're in that seat, when I'm behind this drum kit, the, the quickest way for me to get creative at this drum kit is to sit behind this damn drum kit and understand everything about this drum kit and make it a part of me. And whatever that might be, that might be writing, that might be singing, uh, you know, a florist, a photographer, anything. But to me, and this is me, what, and I know my brother, my, I don't know if he, well, he's cool. He, he talks about weed all the time, but he actually gets more self-reflective when he does smoke weed or things like that. Each their own. To me, that takes me farther away from, I use drugs and alcohol to stunt my spiritual self, which means I needed to stunt my feelings, my thoughts and, 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 and uh, emotions. And to me, all those things put together and my physical self is, is spirituality. And if I'm using anything to numb that or to mind alter that, that takes me farther away. So the more sober I am, that definitely the more creative I am. Is it practice? It takes practice. I practice spirituality. Therefore, now I practice my creative side. So again, if you're just expecting, that's the problem with addiction is like, I used to sit back and say like, I need to play drums today and I need to be creative. Glug, 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 glug. Instant, there it is. And But again, now I'm depending on the outside sources to create my creative side uh it's it's the same with anybody that uh, you know depends on sugar or anything like that it's just uh, i don't feel good but i can i can either get up go for a walk i could meditate i could do some mindfulness but that requires something from inside myself so it's much easier just to grab a cookie and the cookie will do its job and it's guaranteed the cookie's going to do its job and if that doesn't do it i'll do more and more and more oh it's empty now I feel like shit again. And now I feel ashamed of myself and add all that other stuff on. So like I get it at first because our billion year old brain is used to still having, well, we feel dis-ease here and sober. So at first sobriety is 
disease, like disease. You're not easy in sobriety. So it's like the option is always going to be, well, let's drink, let's use, and this will happen. But if you just, I, I like the, the one, one thing that was interesting that, you know, it was a group of men and they came in, we didn't know what the group was going to be in rehab. And it was uh, men in sexuality. And I, uh, it, it was the question was uh, like uh, have has anybody had sex uh, sober yet and i was i was thinking i've never had sex sober never like when i and i was like in my 30s and that scared the shit out of me but it's the same the reason i bring this up it's the same thing it's scary getting behind a drum kit for the first time sober going on a date sober meeting somebody sober and now oh my god it's time we're gonna have sex like that is terrifying but you do it and you become aware of yourself and you understand and now you're you know it's not just like one night stands it actually means something and and that's the other thing same with music it, it actually means something like i listened to the music i created when i was drunk and i thought it was masterpieces and it's horrible <laughs> horrible <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah uh, i mean it, it's a, that's a deep subject but i think it's also more like i need to if john comes to me and says dude i play guitar and i'm not it's okay john let's talk let's ask you a few questions as to why you think like this because it's not it's not about you and your relationship with the guitar it's about you and your fears and experiences and that you can learn the guitar has always been there for you. And if it's something that you enjoy and it's healthy and it's, I mean, music is just the ultimate. You could go so many directions with music. Yeah. yeah I love it. Yeah. I love it. If people want to follow you and follow your journey and get in touch with you, where, where do you put out your stuff? Is it just on your Instagram or where can people find you? Daryl Ralph drums underscore recovery. Daryl Ralph drums underscore recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your music. So if we want to see you when you guys come out on tour, where, where I know Bonzamara is on Spotify. Spotify and uh, YouTube. Uh, and we do have a Facebook page. That's been pretty quiet lately too. Cause uh, yeah, we're all just kind of writing and just, just preparing new material so i uh, we're just gonna make it all align when we have it all done and everything it's gonna be revamped and just coming right out and yeah we're super excited about it you gonna do a u.s tour well uh, we would love to we'd love to we're just gonna have to yeah i don't even know if i could get into the u.s right now the borders are closed right now still right right right, yeah. right yes yeah yes. so it's uh, yeah, everything. This is a super big uh, lesson in patience. This whole year. It's yeah. Like, uh, oh yeah. yeah. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. For all of us. All sometimes of us. I'll think back. Like right now. Yeah. If COVID never happened, we'd have an album out. We'd be on tour, and like, you never know how people are going to react to the album. So, but you know, you That's like true. to be optimistic and say, like, yeah, we'd be kicking some ass right now. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on The Courage to Change. And I appreciate your story and your willingness to be vulnerable and um, talk to people and, and, and share because I know lots of people are going to get so many nuggets of wisdom out of this. So thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was great. I had a lot of fun. Me too. Me too. Uh, I'll have to keep in touch and let you know how Metallica goes. 
Oh, 100%. Yeah, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. It'll be so fun. Well, thank you, Daryl. Appreciate you. Take care. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.